Well, as Libby mentioned, um, we're starting this sermon series tonight. I've been really encouraged by people um, during the course of the day who've been coming up and going, praying for you, um, <laughs> which is always a good start. Um, but uh, we're going to be looking at different subjects. Um, I thought I'd sit on a stool, make it more sort of easy, comfortable, <laughs> mainly for me. Um, but um, hopefully, as Lizzie said, you, you'll find things that are interesting. It may well be that you won't agree with everything that we say. Um, but the idea is that we're going to be looking at different topics each week. Um, sex, love, sexuality, relationships. Um, what does it mean to go out? Um, what does it mean to have a thing? Uh, I discovered this. Um, apparently, it's, it's unique to Scotland, I think. You, uh, you have a thing. If you're over the age of 25, you haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. Ask somebody who's under the age of 25, and they will tell you. But you have a thing nowadays before you go out with somebody. Uh, they didn't do that in my day. Um, you just asked people out, and they said no um, to, to me. Um, we're, we're going to look at singleness. What does it mean to be single? We're going to look at same-sex attraction. Uh, we're going to look at marriage. We're going to look at friendship. We're going to look at a whole range of different topics over the next two months or so uh, at our 7 o'clock uh, service. And trying to see where our faith fits into our sexuality, where our sexuality fits into our faith, and where it fits into our humanity as well. And where our culture often seems to be at odds with perhaps what we think the Bible says. But in all of this, we all come from different places, we come with different experiences, uh, we come with different hopes, different fears, uh, different anxieties. Um, so let's pray together as we begin. Father, thank you that you know everything about us. <laughs> Thank you that you know all that we bring to this particular subject. All the experiences that each of us in this place have with regards to our sexuality. <coughs> and thank you that when you made human beings, as we heard in that reading, you made us to be human beings and our sexuality is part of who we are. And would you help us as we look at this subject tonight and over the ensuing weeks to hear your voice speaking to us? Some of us perhaps struggle, indeed perhaps many if not all of us struggle with this area. Many of us, if not all of us, will have made mistakes in this area. And thank you that you know everything about us. And you long for us to live lives that are full. Lives as you designed us to live. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and bring comfort, encouragement, hope, healing, forgiveness as well as a, thank, a sense of thankfulness and joy in that you made us to be sexual beings. <coughs> so help us now to listen to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, there are many definitions of love, romantic love. Uh, an academic conference was being held, and one speaker defined love as this. The cognitive affective state characterised by intrusive and obsessive fantasising concerning reciprocity of amorant feeling by the object of the amorants. It's a sentiment not found in many Valentine's Day cards. Um, one four-year-old put it more simply, but perhaps more accurately, when she defined love as being when two people think they're pretty, but no one else does. <laughs> that sort of sums it up, really. Um, but the reality is that we live in a society and a culture which, over the last 50 years, has undergone incredible changes uh, in the whole area of sex and sexuality. Um, when it comes to attitudes, when it comes to behaviour, there's been a huge shift, seismic shift in many ways, in the ways in which we think about sex and sexuality, the way in which we talk about sex and sexuality, and there have been a, a number of factors that have contributed towards this. Uh, the onset of more easily available contraception, uh, the increase in the divorce rate, uh, the change in attitudes towards homosexuality, all have been rapid changes in behaviour and thinking and are now reflected in our legal system as well. Even the traditionally conservative Roman Catholic Church uh, has been affected. Uh, if you're watching the news on Friday, you'll have seen reference to the Pope's letter on marriage, uh, where as a result of two years of thinking and drawing people together from around the world, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has announced a new sort of stance on attitudes towards marriage and divorce and, and remarriage. It hasn't changed what it believes about marriage or divorce or about same-sex attraction, but it has softened its attitude. Um, whereas previously people who um, were divorced and then remarried uh, weren't allowed to take communion in a Roman Catholic church, now they're being welcomed and encouraged to. Uh, this particular pope is wanting to soften the church's attitude and, and he's giving freedom to individual Roman Catholic bishops um, to interpret doctrine depending on their particular context and culture. That's so different from where the Roman Catholic Church has been for the previous 2,000 years. Uh, and, and that was only announced on, on Friday. And it is something, as, I, as I've said already, that as human beings um, we struggle with and can get badly wrong. Apparently, even if you are the mother of the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, you can make mistakes uh, in this particular area. And that's come to light this week with Justin Welby discovering that the person that he thought was his dad actually wasn't his dad all along. And it's now 99.57% certain that his father was somebody else, the private secretary to Sir Winston Churchill. And uh, I don't know if you've read the response of Justin Welby, incredibly gracious and humble response, um, saying that actually his identity in Christ is the most important thing to him. Uh, that in becoming a Christian, he found a father who was a perfect father, reliable, understanding, patient, gracious, compassionate. Um, and really, the way in which he's handled this news uh, has been a, an exemplary way of somebody um, learning that somebody made a mistake in this whole area of, of sex and sexuality. And whereas our society has become very different in the way it talks and thinks about sex and sexuality. And at times, if we're honest, the media can seem almost obsessed 
with sex and sexuality. And sometimes, if we're honest again, the church can give the impression that it too is obsessed with sex and sexuality. There has also been increased confusion about what different people think or indeed practice with regards to their sex and sexuality. I don't know whether you saw this week Channel 4's um, latest programme. I, I didn't see it, um, but I saw it trailed. It's called Sex Box. And uh, this is the second series. And um, again, just unthinkable um, 10, 20 years ago. But um, this particular programme um, has a studio audience and a panel of experts, and they talk to the couple, uh, heterosexual couples and same-sex couples, um, and they talk to them about what they want to experience in their sex life together. And they have two or three um, experts uh, that they are sitting on the right. It's a bit like match of the day, um, <laughs> but with regards to sex. Um, and it's on at 10 o'clock on Channel 4. And the, they interview the couple, and then the couple go into the box and try and follow through on the advice that they've been given. And meanwhile, outside the box is the studio audience and the panel of experts. And thankfully, I don't know whether there is a sort of post-game debrief uh, on, on what go wrong, and I don't know whether there are slow motion uh, replays, but um, the, the couple come out of the box and then talk about what's happened in the box and how it was for them. Now again, just think, 20 years ago, such a programme would have been unthinkable on mainstream television, 10 o'clock on a Wednesday evening, um, if you want to watch it. <laughs> uh, but also at the same time, in a society which we're told is increasingly liberal about sex, some attitudes actually haven't changed at all. 77% of the UK population still think that monogamy where you remain committed to one partner is natural, and 92% of the UK population still think that monogamy is desirable. So for all our supposed increased liberality towards sex and sexuality, 92% of the population still actually think that you should stay with one person, with one partner, and remain committed to them. Now, at the same time, through social media, we have sexting, we have Tinder, we have Grindr, we have OkCupiding, I had to look up what that was. Um, we have online pornography, um, which is available in a way that, again, previous generations just couldn't have conceived of. And apparently 75% of men and 25% of women uh, will admit to having looked at online pornography at one time or another. That means that there will be people in this room and you have looked at something online. You went to a website, you went um, and looked at something for your own sexual gratification. 75% of men, 25% of women. And apparently it is a real problem amongst clergy, male clergy, Libby. Um, but it is something that for some reason, maybe um, two or three contributory factors, that male clergy in particular struggle with. So I'm not pointing the finger, I've never actually done it myself, um, but I have colleagues who struggle in this particular area. 75% of the population 
and a good number of them are male clergy. But also, at the same time, apparently, people are having less sex. Sometimes you can get the idea, the impression that... that um, they used to say that, that sex is, is a bit like prayer. Um, you're aware that everybody around you is, is better at it than you are. Um, they're doing more of it than you are. And they're doing it with more people than you do it with. Um, and, but uh, what's happened in the last seven or eight years since 2008 um, is that actually there's been a decrease um, in the amount of sex that people in the UK uh, are having. Um, before 2008, um, the average Briton apparently was having sex seven times a month. Now, I don't know whether it's the austerity cuts or, or whatever, but <laughs> it, it's now down to 4%, four, four times, not 4%, um, four times a month. Uh, one Guardian reporter put it this way this week. In austerity Britain, a smartphone may well be the last thing that you caress at night, and it seems increasingly the only thing that gets turned on in the morning. <laughs> but what does the Bible say about sex and sexuality? And how can Christians be different or distinctive in this particular area? And I think we have to be honest and say that this is an area where the church has not got a great history. Um, the church has often led people to feel guilty, led people to feel condemned. It's an area that people in church have struggled to talk about or be honest about. Um, and somehow sexual sin has been seen to be worse than other types of sin. So you can speed in a car, you can drink too much, you can um, fiddle your income tax, apparently if you're the Prime Minister, um, but they're okay. But sexual sin is somehow worse. Now, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the Bible doesn't actually say that. What the Bible says is that the effects and the consequences of sexual sin can be more powerful and long-lasting because sex in itself is a powerful thing. And because a sexual sin is a sin against your body, then the consequences for you or for other people can seem more powerful and more long-lasting. But in terms of a league table of sin, actually no such thing exists as far as God is concerned. There is no league table of sin as far as God is concerned. Whether it's tax fraud, whether it's lying, whether it's gossip, or whether it's sexual sin, all fall short of the glory of God. But for the particular history of the church and particular uh, theologians who, who wrote about sex in a particularly unhelpful way, particularly in the early church in the Middle Ages, the church is, has got a really bad press when it comes to sex. And one of the things I want to begin with by, by saying this evening is that actually the church and the Bible... God actually believed that, that sex is a really good thing and that sex is a positive thing and it's a beautiful thing but it's also a very powerful thing and therefore has to be handled carefully. I was at a meeting um, just over a year ago now with about 30 church leaders from across 
the UK. And we were, we were talking, we were meeting in London for a day to discuss how we were handling um, the whole change in attitudes towards same-sex relationships, uh, both in the church, but also out with the church. And there were people from the Vineyard, there were people from New Frontiers, there were people from um, Anglican churches, there were Baptist churches, we were all evangelical churches, but we were all coming at it from slightly different angles and with slightly different experiences. But one of the things that we agreed on in the course of the day that was that as a church and as the UK church and as UK church leaders, we were very much on the back foot because we hadn't been teaching people positively about sex and sexuality. And all we were doing was saying no or that's wrong or the Bible doesn't say that rather than giving people a positive overview of what the Bible actually says about sex and sexuality. And that's what we hope to do in this series. And I'm going to skim the surface in introducing the topic this evening. And then week by week over the next few weeks, we're going to look into and delve into and go deeper into particular subjects like intimacy and friendship and going out and singleness and marriage and same-sex attraction. But what I want to do this evening is just paint very quickly a broad overview and put two or three basic principles in place that hopefully will give us a framework for how we then go through the rest of the topics. So the first thing, and it's borne out in that passage that Lizzie read for us from Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 to 25 is that sex and sexuality are part of God's creation. Right from the very beginning of the existence of human beings, God made us to be sexual beings. Right from the beginning of the world, God made human beings to relate to him, but also to relate to each other. However you interpret the book of Genesis, whether you think it's a sort of minute-by-minute minute account of how the creation took place, or whether you think of it as a poetic explanation of why the world is as it is, or whether your view of the book of Genesis, the particular Firstly, the, the 12 chapters that start the book off lie somewhere in between either a minute-by-minute minute account or a sort of poetic, allegorical interpretation of trying to explain why the world is as it is. However you interpret those first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, one thing is very clear. There are some basic principles that are there in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. God creates things. And at the end of each period or day or section or chapter or stanza, however you interpret the book of Genesis, God looks at something that he's created and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's good. And then finally, in the sixth stage, he makes humanity 
and says that humanity is very good. But then comes a stage where God looks at something that he has made and says, it's not good. And what God says is not good is that it's not good for man, humankind, to be alone. Now remember this is before what we call the fall. This is before sin has entered into the world. So at this stage, God and humanity are in a perfect relationship. Perfect relationship between God and humanity. Adam, the first human man in the book of Genesis, is in perfect relationship with God. But God looks at him and says, it's not good. It's not good for Adam to be alone. This sort of drives a cart and horses through this idea that somehow, in God, we should find everything that we need. I think some of the worship songs that we sing can sometimes give that impression. Jesus in you is all that I need and all that I require. It's not actually true according to the Bible. Because God looked at Adam and said, it is not good. Something is missing. Something is lacking. Something is deficient in humanity because they are alone. Even though he's in perfect relationship with the creator of the universe. As human beings, we are made, as, as somebody once said, we're made for fellowship, we're made for friendship, and in some cases we're made for fusion. We're made for fellowship, we're made for friendship, and we're made in some cases for fusion. A friend of mine is a guy called Nigel Pollock, and Nigel um, used to work in Scotland, he's a Scot, he now leads the equivalent of uh, UCCF in New Zealand. And a few years ago, he wrote a book called The Relationships Revolution. Nigel has spoken to hundreds, thousands of students, university students, about the whole area of sex and sexuality and relationships. And he puts it this way in that book. He says, sexuality is an important part of our humanity. As human beings, we are made in God's image with the ability to relate to others and to experience intimacy with them. This capacity for intimate relationships is at the heart of our sexuality. It has to do with our identity as men and women and with being bodily creatures. It involves caring, experiencing sensual pleasure, creativity, receiving and giving affection, communication and sexual intercourse. Now do you see what Nigel is doing? He's drawing a distinction between sexual intercourse and sexuality. And he's saying that sexuality is part of our identity as human beings, but our sexuality does not define who we are as human beings. 
So sex does not equal sexuality, and sexuality does not equal our identity as human beings. And sexuality is bigger than just sexual intercourse. It's about intimacy, it's about caring, it's about sharing, it's about communication, it's about creativity. It is about experiencing sensual, physical pleasure, but actually it's so much more than that. Now, as Libby said at the start of the service, this sermon series is relevant for all of us because all of us are human beings. We all have a pulse. We all breathe. And therefore, we're all sexual beings. We will express our sexuality in different ways. But it's part of who God made us to be. All human beings have value to God. All human beings are made in his image. All human beings have a physical side to their lives. Genesis 2, that creation story, affirms bodily life, as does the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity is not just a spiritual thing. Somehow we can get the idea that God, our Christian faith, is just about the spiritual side of life. That's not actually a biblical idea. The biblical picture of what it means to live in relationship with God is that it affects every single part of every single person's life. And that includes this stuff, the flesh and blood stuff. It's not just spiritual, woo airy-fairy. It actually involves physicality. That's why Jesus' resurrection body was a physical body. There was something different about its physicality. It could appear and disappear. It could walk through locked doors. But it also could eat fish. Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples, ate fish to prove that he wasn't a ghost because the disciples had been taught from an early age that ghosts can't eat fish. No, they hadn't. Um, but he was just proving a point, wasn't he? He was saying, look, this is me, it's still me, but there is something different about the physicality of the resurrection body of Jesus. But what's being affirmed is that God's creation involves physicality. When the new creation comes, when Jesus returns, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. This earth will be renewed, it will be restored. Tom Wright, in one of his books, points out that this idea that, that so many Christians in the West have of heaven being up there and of us going up to heaven, it's not actually biblical. Time and time again, in the Old and the New Testament, what we have is heaven coming down to earth and this creation being restored and renewed. Christianity, then, is not just a spiritual thing. It involves our flesh and blood, as well as our prayers, our sex, as well as our songs. Secondly, every human being is made in God's image, and that includes our sexuality. Genesis chapter 2 describes human beings on many different levels. 
physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual. But one of the things that God says is that it's not good to be alone. So what God does is he creates a helper for the man. A helper who is fit or suitable for him. Now what is not being said here? That word helper, the Hebrew word is, is Isa. That word helper does not imply inferiority or submission. Um, some people get the idea, and it has been taught in some churches, um, that somehow because the woman is made from the man, that makes the woman less than the man. Other people have pointed out that because the woman is created last, that means that the woman is the peak of God's creation. Uh, she was just ex he was just experimenting uh, when he was working with the man, but actually he got it right when he made women. That's a whole discussion for a whole different ball game, and I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> but this word helper is actually used 21 times in the Old Testament. And 16 times it refers to God. 16 times it refers to God as the helper of human beings. Now there is no idea or sense of submission or inferiority or dependency when it refers to God and neither should it be read into it when it refers to woman. But what's supposed to be being reflected here is the relationships at the heart of the Godhead itself. One writer on spirituality, Dallas Willard, wrote this. God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. Why? Because it's a reflection of who God himself is. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That we are made in God's image, and one of the ways in which we are made in God's image is that we reflect the image of God by the nature of our relationships, one with each other. And that God made us as human beings to reflect something that is very profound and deeply at the heart of who God is himself, i.e. relationships. We believe in a relational God. Christianity is not a God simply of creeds and doctrines and beliefs and statements, but it is primarily a relationship, a love relationship, where you and I are invited into a friendship with God, a relationship, not blind devotion or obedience, but a relationship, because that reflects who God himself is. A series of mutually submissive relationships at the heart of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit. It's one reason why, if I'm honest, I feel so sad when I hear that somebody who is a Christian is either going out with or moving in with somebody who isn't a Christian. 
It doesn't mean that that relationship will be bad. It doesn't mean that that relationship won't work. It doesn't mean that that relationship won't bring joy to both partners. And I know it's difficult, particularly for girls, for women in churches, particularly in churches like this, because um, they're often outnumbered. They outnumber the blokes by an enormous ratio. And they look at the Christian blokes and they think, honestly? <laughs> and I know, and I've got really good friends who've struggled with this for, for decades. And I, I know as a 55-year-old married heterosexual, this is easy for me to say. But I will never forget, never forget, when I was an intern, going to visit somebody who who'd popped into the church that I was working for on a Sunday. And we used to have, it was quite a large church, 600, but we used to have a visitor's book. Um, and people used to write their names and addresses if they were visiting the church. And this woman wrote her name and address in the visitor's book that was in the foyer of the church. And she lived about a mile away from the church, so the minister asked me to go and, and see her. So the next Tuesday, I, I popped round and, and said, um, just following up, you, you were in church on Sunday and we haven't seen you before and you left your name and address and you indicated that you were happy for one of us to, to pop round and just to say hi and I just wonder if we can help as a church and wonder what was going on and, and why you came to church last week. And she said, well, I'm married and I've got a young son. My partner isn't a Christian and before we married, he, he said that he respected my faith, that I was a very committed Christian and, and that when we got married, I could continue to go to church and were we to have children, then he would happily let me um, bring the child to, or children to church and, and that was okay. But when we got married, everything changed and he forbade me from ever going to church again and when our son was born he forbade me from bringing my son to church and this was in Manchester I'm not talking Soviet Russia and it just so happens that he's, he's a long-distance lorry driver and and this Sunday was the first Sunday that he's been working away from home and I knew that he wouldn't come back over the weekend it's my one chance since I got married and since I've had my son to bring my son to church. And so I came this Sunday and I came with my son, but I know it's the only time that I'll be able to bring him. And I will never forget her look, her expression. And as she looked at me and she just said, if I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have married him. Because although I love him deeply and I know that he loves me deeply and our marriage is a good marriage, my faith has completely stopped. It's stunted. It's just lessened. And he's denied part of who I am. And I know it's not easy and I know it's not simple and I know it's complicated. But I'm really sad when I hear Christians going out with or moving in with or even marrying people who aren't Christians because I know that it's not as full a relationship as it could be because God will not be at the centre of that relationship. 
Because God's design is the creation of this inclusive community of loving persons, with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. It doesn't mean that all Christian marriages are perfect. It doesn't mean that Christian marriages are better or worse than non-Christian marriages or where one of the partners is a Christian and one isn't. But it will always mean that something is missing, potentially, from that relationship. It will always mean that that person isn't able to express and share something that is at the core of who they are. And then thirdly and finally, sex and sexuality find their meaning and fulfilment in a committed relationship. That's what Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 is all about. I'm going to tell you something very deep and profound. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 follows Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. You can tell I'm a professional. I've been doing this for years. But there's a reason why those two things are put together. The woman is made from the man. You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Literally, Adam is saying to Eve, we're made of the same stuff. You are the same flesh and blood as me. You're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And immediately that statement is made, then verse 24 follows. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. There is something intrinsically linked. Sex is a beautiful, powerful and amazing gift from God. And it's there right at the beginning of humanity. When Adam saw Eve and Eve saw Adam, and verse 25 tells us that they were naked and felt no shame, we are told that probably in the ancient Hebrew, Adam looked at Eve and thought, aye aye. And Eve looked at Adam and thought, not bad. And they had sex with each other. We aren't told that, that God sort of looks away and goes, oh my goodness, what are they doing now? I didn't intend for them to do that. But it's part of who God made them to be and got part of who God made us to be. But that it was intended for sex to be expressed and our sexuality to find its fullest expression in the context of a committed relationship. Sex is a gift from God. Sex is a beautiful gift from God. Sex is a powerful gift from God. But because it is so beautiful and because it is so powerful, it needs to be handled carefully. You can reduce sex simply to a physical act. And it will perhaps be enjoyable for one or indeed both of the partners. Remember a friend's teenage daughter sleeping with her boyfriend. Um, she'd been brought up within the church, she'd been brought up within the youth groups, she'd been brought up um, within the church, within a Christian family. But one night, she had a bit too much to drink, and they ended up having sex. The next morning, she woke up and she was racked with guilt. Now, credit to her, 
she rang the vicar and asked to see the vicar. I'm not sure I would have done the same. But she rang the vicar and said, I need to come and see you. She told her parents what had happened. And then she sat down with this vicar that she'd known for several years and told him what had happened. She didn't know what to expect, how he would respond, whether he would tell her off, whether he would tell her, how could you do such a thing? Whether she would be told she let her parents down, let herself down, let the church down, you know, sort of PE teacher sort of talk. She didn't know what to expect. What she wasn't expecting was the first question that came out of the mouth of the vicar. The vicar simply said, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy it? At the time, did you enjoy it? And she said, yes, I did. And the vicar simply said, we were supposed to enjoy sex as human beings. That's the way that we're built, physically, physiologically, emotionally, and spiritually. But you recognise that it wasn't just a physical act that occurred last night. And they began to explore and they began to discuss why sex is more than simply a physical act. Sex is supposed to be the literal climax of a couple's commitment to each other. Good sex involves intimacy, caring, sharing, vulnerability, knowledge, and at times a really good sense of humour. You can reduce it to only a physical act, but it is so much more than that. It's an emotional act. It's a physiological act. It's a spiritual act. Next week, Libby will look in more depth as to why we struggle with sex and intimacy. It is one of the consequences of the fall that Adam and Eve looked at one another and not only felt distant from God, but actually felt distant from each other. But the reality is that if you have sex with somebody, it's not just simply a physical act. In what the Bible describes as a mystery, which is helpful, there is some way in which you are linked with each person that you have sex with. The onset of HIV and AIDS in the 1980s showed this to be true physically. But actually, all it was doing was saying the same thing in a different way that the Bible has proclaimed for years. That when you have sex with somebody, you are linked physically, but also at a very deep level, you're linked in a different way. A recent study at the University of Virginia rejects the so-called Vegas fallacy. The idea that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Or that what happens before marriage doesn't affect later relationships. One of the biggest contributors to difficulties in marriage, and particularly the sexual side of marriage, is what are called sexual ghosts, where people constantly worry about comparisons from previous 
relationships? Was the previous partner more loving? Was the previous partner better at sex than I am? It's a constant reminder and a constant source of difficulty in relationships. So, three basic principles as we go into this sermon series. Sex and sexuality are part of God's creation. We're made in God's image and that includes our sexuality. And sex and our sexuality find their meaning and fulfilment within a committed relationship. In essence, what Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 teach is that God invented sex. It is God's idea. I love the story of the then Pope asking the musician Louis Armstrong whether he had children. No, he replied, but we're having a lot of fun trying. Sex is meant to be enjoyed, but in the right context. Because it is precious and because it is valuable. This sermon series, we are aware, is going to raise a lot of issues for people. You won't agree with everything that we say from the front. You may well disagree with some of what we say. But I hope that each of us will have a greater appreciation of what the Bible teaches about sex, about what the Bible teaches about sexuality, about what the Bible teaches about humanity, and about how as individual human beings and as Christians and as a church, we should handle and respond to and cope with a gift from God. A gift which is incredibly powerful and which can do incredible damage and bring about much pain, but which also can bring about so much joy and was always intended to reflect who God is himself. Would you stand? And we're going to pray together and then the band and Libby will lead us in a time of response.